on episode 628 of the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, we bring back Gary Taubes and discuss his new book, Rethinking Diabetes, What Science Reveals About Diet, Insulin, and Successful Treatments. You can find the full show notes for this episode at 40plusfitnesspodcast.com forward slash 628. Have you decided you're ready to make a change to reclaim your health and fitness? The 40 Plus Fitness Podcast is here for you. Each week, we dive deep into health and fitness topics that affect those of us over 40. I'm Coach Allen. I'm an NASM certified personal trainer with specializations in corrective exercise, behavior change, performance enhancement, and fitness nutrition. A Precision Nutrition Level 1 coach, a FAI certified functional aging specialist, and an OTA Level 2 online trainer. Each week, I'm joined by our co-host, Coach Rachel. She is an NASM certified personal trainer and a RRCA level one run coach. Let us be your coaches as you find your way on your health and fitness journey. All right, let's go. Hey, Raz. Hey, Alan. How are you today? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Good. Things are busy at Lula's. You know, we're getting Good. into February here and it's we're doing well now. But there's those couple months where we weren't is, is kind of happening. You know, it has its toll. You're running a business mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, what we would have had for a year would have been an awesome year. Turned out to not be such an awesome oh. year. But that's fine. It's fine. It is what it is. You know, mm-hmm. we're running a business. We're going to keep running it the best we can. And awesome. you know, my hopes are is now... We've got a good January, a good February going. So good. 2024 looks like it's going to be a much better year. Awesome. That sounds great. How are things for you? Good. Still cold up here in Michigan. Yeah. <laughs> but we're doing well. I mentioned earlier, my daughter is engaged to be married and we're making some good plans. We've got a date. It'll be in June. She's got her dress and we're just ticking off all the boxes, getting stuff done. So that's pretty exciting. Well, good, good. Now, so you're yeah. going to hit this uh, this transition in life where you're not only an empty nester, but your daughter doesn't have the same last name anymore. That's right. <laughs> I got to learn how to spell the boy's last name. It shouldn't yeah, be too I'll, hard, but I'll, it's different. I'll tell this story. My daughter was getting married and I had met her and her boyfriend, her fiance at the time. And so I go into the place. She wants all the guys in the wedding had to wear the same suit. This was the place that sold the suit. I'm going in to get the suit sized because it just happened to timing. So I think she was going to get married in, I think she getting married in November and this was like August. Mm-hmm. And so I walk in and I go in and I say, okay, I'm here to buy a suit. And they're like, okay, who's the wedding? I says, it's Becca. And she's like, what's the groom's last name? <laughs> oh my gosh. Did it take a minute? Like, yeah. I was like, huh. oh my God. You know, <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't even know the guy's last, I knew his first name, but I didn't Aww. even know his last name. So I'm sitting there going back and forth. I'm like, it's Jay and Becca, Jay and Becca. <laughs> and they were flipping through their papers. And they found it. Fortunately, oh, it was one, like one of the largest orders because he had like, I don't know, 13 groomsmen or wow. something like that. So that's a big and order. She, and because of that, then she had to at least try to even it up. So it didn't look like this weird flock of geese flying north. <laughs> oh, boy. That's <laughs> Anyways, awesome. So, yeah, I had to learn his name. And like even today, I was sending something to her and I had to write her name. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, this is the first time I've actually written that last the name. And she, last they've been name. married now for over a year. Oh, um, <laughs> but it's boy, the first time I've had boy. to physically write it down, which was oh interesting. Oh my goodness. That is funny. Yep. So, yeah. Got to get used to that. Changes. Got some, 
new things coming on. But uh, mm-hmm. all right. So you ready to talk to um, Dr. Taps? I mean, Mr. Taps. I always want to call him a doctor because he, he, yeah. he is so smart. <laughs> he does I, so much research that I just think of him as a doctor because sure. of, of all the things he does. But no, it's Gary Taubes. You ready to have that conversation? Sure. Okay. Our guest today is an investigative science and health journalist and co-founder of the nonprofit Nutrition Science Initiative. He is the author of Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It and Good Calories, Bad Calories. He is the recipient of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Investigator Award in Health Policy Research and has won numerous other awards for his journalism. With no further ado, here's Gary Taubes. Gary, welcome to 40 Plus Fitness. Thank you for having me, Alan. So your next book has to be on stress management now, right? Uh, (laughs) 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 We had so much trouble getting on this call. But today, the book we want to talk about is Rethinking Diabetes, What Science Reveals About Diet, Insulin, and Successful Treatments. You know, when you started laying this out and saying this was a history book, I was a little like, okay, you know, I I just want Gary to tell me how to eat because I know he does his research. But I'm really glad that you did take the time to lay that out because there was just, there were so many layers to this that I kind of had, I went through a lot. I went through moments where I was just, okay, if I had met that guy in person, I'd choke him out. And then there were moments where I just, I, I want to shake someone's hand and then then it would flip. And then the person I wanted to shake their hand, now I want, I want to choke them out. <laughs> this whole convoluted story of science and medicine, food and diabetes and treatment. It's a can of worms. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. The yeah, So let's talk about why I wrote a history of medicine book on, on basically on diabetes therapy and how diabetes researchers, I'm going to refer to anyone who studies diabetes or you know, in medical practice specialize in diabetes as diabetologists, since that'll simplify everything. But one of the issues with being a journalist and writing books that challenge conventional thinking in medicine and nutrition is you have to establish on what basis you think you have a right to do that and you think you know better. So my expertise throughout my career has always been the one subject I've studied, I've written multiple books on, and I think I know better than probably anyone else alive is good science and bad science. I mean, good scientists know that implicitly, but I have studied it explicitly. And when you look into the history of these fields, you could see why people came to believe certain assumptions were true. You could see whether or not they tested their assumptions to see if they were true, whether they adjusted their thinking when their assumptions failed the tests, and whether assumptions were kind of grandfathered into how we think about this disease and therapy without ever being tested. And so when you do that, when you go back in time to look at, you know, the evidence base for what we believe about ideal therapies for diabetes, you end up telling a history. You say, look, this is what we believed at this point in time. This is why we changed our beliefs. This was the actual evidence on which the beliefs were changed. This was what happened when we tested them. So I end up in writing Rethinking Diabetes with a sort of not just a history of the relevant diet-drug-disease relationship, but coming to conclusions about what perhaps these people should have concluded 
had they known then what we know now. We have the benefit of hindsight. And the benefit of doing this in the 2020s is that because of all these internet repositories, you can basically get all this research uh, either downloaded or delivered to your doorstep, say 90% of what should have been known about the science back when people were making decisions on 5 or 10 or 15%. You know, the doctors would make decisions about diabetes therapy based on what they read in the journals that they got subscriptions to in the languages that they could read, maybe what their local libraries had. And now we can see almost all of it. And it's as though they were, we have a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and physicians and diabetologists were making decisions based on 50 to 100 pieces that they could access. And we can now see 900, 950 pieces. We can have a very sort of solid idea about what image is on this puzzle when they were in effect guessing and then locking in their guesses over time. Yeah. And then that's where personality gets involved and science can go out the door. Yeah. Well, one <laughs> of the, the fundamental issues here is doctors are not trained to be scientists. They're trained to be doctors. They often sort of look down on people with PhDs as FUDs, was how they were called by my doctor friends when I was young. There is a very sort of being a scientist requires this very delicate balance between believing a hypothesis to be true or likely to be true and then being rigorously, extravagantly skeptical of your own thinking so that you can abandon that hypothesis if it's not true even if you build your career on it. And then doctors just say, you're confronted with patients. Doctors are confronted with patients. They have to make decisions in the moment about what they think the best evidence shows. And the problem is based on their decisions, they also come to conclusions about what they think the disease is, is what it's telling them. Then, like I said, once you've made a decision, you've decided this is likely to be true. You kind of lock yourself in after that, especially if you've acted on it, into believing it was true because you don't want to believe that you actually did people harm or that you made mistakes along the way. And it just it becomes a can of worms would be the <laughs> phrase you used, a kind way to yeah. put it. So, yeah, it's uh, the book is as much about the conflict between medicine and science and how doctors think versus how they should think to establish reliable knowledge and what happens when these assumptions are established as, as truth, as dogma, without really being rigorously tested. Not just being rigorously tested, but surviving the tests. <laughs> yeah. Well, and some of them were. I think that's that's one of the good takeaways here, where there were some really good doctors in this history book. <laughs> Diabetes kind of started really hitting the scene around 100 years ago. And they were seeing a lot of type 1 diabetes, then type 2 was starting to come around. And so there was this, okay, what's going on here? This is different. And they didn't have exogenous insulin to shoot the folks up. They didn't really know insulin existed. And so they were, like you said, they were, I would say practicing because <laughs> they do call it, call it a medical practice, uh, but they would practice on a few patients and see what was happening and then adjust and adapt and come up with another way. They were sharing information with other doctors, which I was actually glad to see. 
because I think that's how you learn. You you know how many cases you're going to see, how many they're going to see, and over time you can build a body of uh, experience that one doctor could never never experience himself. So can we talk a little bit about treatments and things people were doing before exogenous insulin existed? Okay, so apparently the first example, the first case in which a physician seemed to put a case of diabetes into remission was 1797. It was a a British doctor named John Rollo. He's got a patient. He's in the military. He's got a patient in the military. uh, Colonel Meredith. Meredith has recently lost a lot of weight. He's showing all the symptoms of diabetes, which are, you know, this sort of extravagant hunger, thirsty all the time. He's peeing constantly. He goes to Rollo. Rollo. Back then, this is 1797. It was common for a physician to taste the urine to make diagnoses. He tastes the urine. The urine's sweet, so he diagnoses diabetes. And he decides that since the urine's sweet, it's got too much carbohydrates in it too much that it shouldn't be there that's making it sweet so carbohydrates come from plants and so he decides he's going to basically feed him a diet without a lot of plant matter and he prescribes this diet which is sort of fatty rancid meat blood sausages and uh, you know green some green vegetables and he's also giving him drugs he's giving him uh, morphine was a common treatment back then and uh, Meredith does better he his thirst goes away, his hunger goes away, he gains some weight back, and uh, Rollo writes a pamphlet about this. He also treats a general with the same diet, and the general seems to do better, but the general goes home, falls off the diet, and dies. So Rollo decides if you stay on the diet, he'd probably cure diabetes. He writes a pamphlet, distributes it throughout the England, the United Kingdom, to physicians to suggest they try it on their diabetic patients, and it seems to work. And through the 19th century, the standard of care is what's called the animal diet. They drop the rancid meat. French Dr. Baudinaire gets involved, and Apollinaire, I forget his name at the moment, then, you know, brings a little French cuisine into it. By the end of the 19th century, they're realizing that they, they want to give their patients who are tend to be losing a lot of weight or if they have what we today would call type 1 diabetes they're emaciated and young you want to build up their bodies so you want to give them as much calories as possible so by the early 20th century the idea like 1900 1905 it's like feed them as much fat as you can and Elliot Jocelyn, who starts the first diabetes clinic in the United States, he's a Harvard-trained doctor. He specializes in diabetes in Boston. His clinic eventually becomes the Jocelyn Diabetes Center at Harvard. Is you know says, look, the, the the secret to keeping these people alive is getting them to eat as much fat as they can. He actually learns that from the German diabetologists who have, you know, the most clinical experience in the world at that point. That's kind of the diet. It's it's today we would call it keto. Back then it was, you know, the sort of high fat animal diet. Jocelyn's actually one of the reasons he's so interested. His mother has diabetes. Again, probably a type two diabetic whose pancreas eventually fails her, so she loses a lot of weight and is diagnosed and she stays alive longer than any of her other family by rigid adherence to this high-fat, animal-product-rich diet. And there's a brief interlude from 1914 to 1921 where another Harvard doctor, Fred Allen, decides the best way to treat patients is to semi-starve them. And you have this sort of starvation therapy that 
takes patients who are one of the diagnostic criteria of diabetes is ravenous hunger at the time, and then you starve them further. And again, with patients with type 1, these young kids, you could keep them alive longer by doing so. And then 1921, insulin's discovered. And insulin is the hormone that the pancreas should be producing. And University of Toronto researchers discover it, purify it, use it as therapy, and find that they could basically bring these kids at the brink of death, emaciated 15-year-olds who weigh 50 pounds and could restore them to life. They would talk about it as almost literally a resurrection, like a biblical experience. And as soon as you start giving patients insulin, you create the disease of low blood sugar, hypoglycemia, and that can be deadly. That can be fatal, very quickly fatal. So you have to get the patients to eat carbohydrates so that they don't die of low blood sugar. So your cure creates a new disease, and simultaneously, you go from diets that basically had the patient abstaining entirely from carbohydrates to telling them to eat carbs and telling them to eat carbs at regular intervals and they should have them at breakfast and they should have them at snacks and they should have them at lunches. And that way, when the insulin covers them, you won't kill them with low blood sugar. And as this is happening, physicians are making decisions about what this says about the diet. And the one thing they don't know is what the long-term consequences of any of this are. So you imagine they create a drug like a anti-cancer drug that could cure some horrible cancer. And in the short run, it works tremendously, keeps people alive, but you have no idea what the long-term benefits of this diet is. And by the time those, the, not the, excuse me, not just the long-term benefits, the long-term risks, and by the time those risks and benefits are start to sort of wash over these patients, this wave of diabetic complications that we're so familiar with today, which are heart failure, atherosclerosis, uh, nerve damage, amputations and gangrene and retinopathies, uh, damage to the, to the eyes and blindness, kidney failure. You're so far along in treatment, 10, 15 years, that you don't know What's causing it? And that's what we've been living with ever since. These decisions made in the 1920s about how to, and 30s about how to treat the disease with no real understanding of how they affect these long-term complications. I've talked on here a lot about homeostasis and how our body likes to stay in balance. And it has all these, in some places, some places very complex relationships between things to help make that happen. And I think insulin and glucagon is one of the, maybe one of the easier ones to understand, but it is extremely complex when you get down to the the true science of how it happens in the body. But could, so could you just give us a little bit of a primer on insulin and glucagon and, and how the two of them, both coming from the pancreas, work together to kind of keep us in a, a good place or should keep us in a good place? Okay, there's, again, a lot to unpack and what you just said. So homeostasis is sort of the one of the most important concepts ever discovered in medicine. Dates to, again, 1865, a French physiologist, very famous, named Claude Bernard. And the idea is basically that everything our bodies do is to try to keep relatively constant the conditions 
he called it the milieu interior, the interior milieu, but the the conditions right outside the cell walls, because your cells are basically living in that environment. They have to stay alive, and all they're seeing are the nutrients in that environment, the vitamins and minerals right outside the cell walls and the cellular fluids and the, the fluid circulating through the bloodstream, and they're seeing hormones and signaling molecules and inflammatory molecules, and our body is working through this system of hormones and the nervous system to keep that constant. One more message and then I'm done. The hormone that's in diabetes in 1889, a German physician, a researcher named Minkowski realizes that the pancreas is a problem and a problem in diabetes because when you remove the pancreas from dogs, if you keep them alive, they become diabetic. 1921, as we said, these University of Toronto researchers led by Banting and Best realized that the hormone that's missing is insulin. So the idea is that insulin controls blood sugar, and without it, you have high blood sugar and all the symptoms of diabetes. You give insulin, you lower blood sugar, as we discussed, and forever after, (laughs) effectively, diabetes is seen as a disorder, or at least for the next 40 years years of insulin deficiency. While researchers are studying insulin and focusing on its effect on blood sugar, other researchers have established that the pancreas actually seems to secrete two hormones that work together. And one of the messages of how our endocrine system, our system of hormones controls homeostasis, keeps us in homeostasis equilibrium, is it does it by not just secreting hormones that have certain effects, but having those hormones in turn react with counter-regulatory hormones that have the opposite effects. So anything that's working to do one thing, there's guaranteed to be another hormone that's working to do the opposite, and these hormones are going to be linked. And the idea was that as these researchers began to realize that blood sugar is controlled not just by insulin telling cells to take up blood sugar and use it for fuel, so insulin lowers blood sugar, and you get to uh, utilize, but also this hormone glucagon, which is secreted by neighboring cells in the pancreas, that actually tells the liver to create an effect, glucose, blood sugar, and secrete that glucose into the bloodstream to keep blood sugar up. So we have this dual hormone system, um, insulin being secreted by cells called beta cells, glucagon being secreted by cells called alpha cells, which are right next to the beta cells. The mechanisms in the cells are very similar. Glucose stimulates insulin secretion and inhibits glucagon secretion. So glucose is blood sugar in effect. Insulin itself inhibits glucagon secretion and glucagon inhibits insulin secretion. And these have to work perfectly. But diabetes researchers and physicians are so focused on insulin that they pay virtually no attention to glucagon. And glucagon, while secreted from the pancreas, is doing the bulk of its work in the liver, which is the hormone, the organ that's secreting glucose into the circulation and working to raise blood sugar. So in an ideal world, Glucagon and insulin are working together, and they're working to keep blood sugar stable, which is what, you know, it's relatively stable in those of us who don't have diabetes. And if you don't have enough insulin, you're going to have too much glucagon. If you have too much glucagon, you're not going to have enough insulin. And if you have 
too much insulin, you're not going to have enough glucose. You know, it's, it's, it's hopelessly connected. And vitally important to this is that the insulin and the glucagon are both secreted by the pancreas. So the highest doses in any cell C are in the pancreas, and the next highest doses are in the, the liver, down the portal vein. If you just inject insulin, as we do with insulin therapy, exogenous insulin, as you call it, you're putting insulin eventually into the circulation. So it has to, by the time it gets to the pancreas, it's seeing an entirely different dose. The pancreatic alpha cells are seeing a very different dose than they would if insulin was secreted from the pancreas. And these are all revelations that are made by really good researchers, physiologists studying these systems through the 20th century. And the implications are profound for how we treat the disease. And yet, when you look back at this history, you see that the way we treat this disease never really changes in response to our changing understanding of the disease itself. And even when it does, it's three decades later. It's three <laughs> decades later. or But even today, you know, we have these wonderful new drugs, GLP-1 agonists, receptor agonists that are used to treat both diabetes and are considered wonder drugs for obesity. And the way the researchers think about those drugs working is purely sort of through the insulin system, because they think, oh, these drugs reduce, you know, they bring blood sugar under control. Therefore, they must be stimulating insulin secretion. And in cell cultures, they will indeed stimulate insulin secretion. But when you actually, you know, they are called glucagon-like peptides for a reason, because they are very much like a glucagon in their they're the proteins in their shape and and, and come configuration, and they have an effect on glucagon as well. And what you could be seeing is a glucagon-related effect, not an insulin-related effect, but that's not how people think about it. One of the messages with the kind of research I've done is that when you talk about all the mistakes that were made in medicine along the way, they don't tend to become trivial. They tend to become compounded with time. They sort of pollute the science ever after because people just embrace these things as the correct way to think about it. I want to jump ahead a little bit here. Now, obviously, okay, so a wonder drug, if you will, or basically a hormone, is starting to help people live a lot longer than they would have lived otherwise. And so as a result, now they're actually starting to see some of the downstream effect of folks with diabetes that live a little bit longer and or maybe even the effect of insulin itself when it's injected this way. And that's heart disease, atherosclerosis, and some of the other diseases that are out there. Can you kind of describe why there's such a huge correlation between diabetes and heart disease and the other metabolic diseases? Well, again, it gets, as soon as we get into it, it gets complicated. So what happened, like I said, uh, once insulin is discovered and insulin therapy is initiated almost exactly 100 years ago, you can suddenly keep patients with diabetes a lot longer and this uh, alive a lot longer than otherwise. So this includes not just young kids who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes who are at the brink of death, and now you can keep them alive indefinitely, but the folks with the chronic form of the disease that associates with obesity and aging, type 2 diabetes, who you know, wouldn't show up into the doctor until they had lost a lot of weight and were clearly 
suffering insulin deficiency. So now you're giving them insulin, you're keeping them alive. And then by the 19, early, late 1920s, early 1930s, you start seeing this wave of complications comes in the medical community. So all these and kids who might have been diagnosed at age 12 and kept alive for 20 years by insulin, which is the miracle aspect of it, are now dying in their early, you know, late 20s, early 30s of heart disease, kidney failure, blindness. You know, they're getting all these awful complications. It's still tragic. They're still dying way too young. It's as though they're aging too quickly because they're getting these diseases that strike the rest of us in our 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. They're getting them in their 20s and 30s. And the physicians confronted with this now, and well, I should say, as this has been happening, the physicians have been liberalizing the diets ever more because they think of insulin as a miracle drug. And they think rather than tell people to restrict the carbohydrates they eat and um, minimize their doses of insulin, they're saying, why don't we let people, particularly kids, eat whatever they want and cover it with insulin? So the insulin doses get higher and higher. The drugs do a very poor job of controlling insulin, but the physicians can't, excuse me, controlling blood sugar, but the physicians can't really measure. They can't measure blood sugar in any meaningful way, so they don't know that. And when these diabetic wave of complications washes over the, their patients, they don't really know what to do about it. They assume it's because their blood sugar is poorly controlled. They never think that it might be related to the insulin they're giving them as well. It's hard for physicians to think that the drugs they're giving them are also creating complications. And by the time the medical community starts using randomized controlled trials to test drugs and diets to see what works and the long-term risks and benefits, that's 1950s, 1960s. This belief system that we should let patients eat carbohydrate liberal diets. We should let them eat whatever everyone else eats. They have to count it. They have to count their carbs at breakfast, lunch, and dinner so they know how much they're eating, so they know how much insulin to take. They have to take specific doses of carbs at snacks so they cover that insulin. And the insulin covers the carbs, but we're not going to tell them they can't eat pasta, bread, potatoes, because they're not going to listen to us anyway. So these are all assumptions that are sort of embraced and this diet never gets tested. And through the 1970s and onward, as the diabetes community starts doing ever larger and sort of more rigorous tests to test their assumptions about keeping blood sugar under control by drugs, the assumptions almost invariably fail to be confirmed by the studies. So they find it's just harder. And no matter what they do, the complications from the disease seem to be inevitable, and they never test the idea that one of the problems is the diet, that as long as you let patients eat whatever carbohydrates they want, they are going to get complications and these long-term chronic effects, and that the other problem might be the insulin and the drugs they're giving as well. And that's never really embraced. It's When it's tested, the tests seem to demonstrate that that's what's happening, but that's not how these physicians are thinking. So you've got a situation, in fact, there's sort of two ways to think about treating this disease, and there were two ways to think about it back in the 1920s. One is the symptoms only appear when people eat 
carbohydrate-rich foods. So I'm not talking green leafy vegetables, but starches, potatoes, grains. And if they minimize consumption of those or abstain from those foods, they either won't manifest symptoms of the disease or the symptoms can be controlled with very low doses of drugs. Patients with type 1 diabetes will always need a little, some insulin, but they'll need a lot less if they don't eat carbs. Patients with type 2 diabetes might not need any drugs at all if they abstain from eating these foods. And then the other way to think about it is the way we did, which is you let them eat whatever they want. Although maybe you say you got to, again, rigorously count the calories, the carb calories in every meal so you know how much drugs you should be taking. And then you cover it with drugs. And we never actually, you know, the point I'm making in this book is that. When you look at these clinical trials and you look what was tested over the past 40 years when we really started doing these tests, this is a degenerative chronic disease that requires more and more drug therapy as time goes on if you're eating a carbohydrate-rich diet. And it very likely is not if you're not, if you're abstaining from those carbs. As you went through it in the book, it was kind of one of those moments where I was like, there were doctors that kind of got it with the let's do the, that minimum effective dose. Let's not give them more than they need. Let's put it together with eating. That's a concept I haven't seen in medicine a lot at all. Um, and particularly, you start talking about heart disease. You start talking about other things. There really isn't enough conversation. I mean, at least in my opinion, about how food is medicine, even though <laughs> that concept's been around for quite some time, it doesn't seem to be practiced as much. I saw a lot more of that in this book than I expected to see in the history. So let's say you happen to go to the doctor and they told you, <laughs> hey, Gary, your numbers are up. Your A1C is, is starting to hit that point. We're going to call this prediabetes. What are you going to eat? From that point forward, you probably already eat that way, but just, I do already eat that way because yeah, <laughs> one of the messages from all my books, and again, which is based on arguably doing more research in the literature than anyone alive up to a certain point in time. I think you got um, the meta study down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there is a cluster of chronic diseases that associate together. And by that, I mean, they associate together in populations, they appear in populations together, they become sort of epidemic together, and they appear in patients. If you have one, you're likely much more likely to have the others. And this is obesity and diabetes and gout and heart disease and cancer is one of them. And Dementia is one of them. I mean, basically all the chronic diseases that, that are likely to shorten our lives and kill us and make our old age, our oldest age, very uncomfortable are diseases that are associated with Western diets and lifestyles. And when you look into the history of this idea and the research, the, the conventional thinking is it's caused by eating too much and maybe being sedentary and maybe the fat then the diet causes heart disease and the salt in the diet causes hypertension. And so strokes, cerebrovascular disease, and maybe the red meat and the alcohol cause gout. And every disease has a sort of different trigger. And the other hypothesis that was always out there is these are caused basically by the refining of sugar and grains, highly processed grains and sugars. And 
once you live in a population where that's a staple of your diet, these diseases are going to manifest themselves, they're going to be passed on from mother to child in the wombs, so they're going to get worse with each generation. And it seems to be what we're suffering from today. And the, the sort of dietary therapy that that hypothesis implied and that had been in many ways conventional thinking for 200 years is that if you avoid these carbohydrate-rich foods, you will be relatively healthy. This isn't really food as medicine so much as it's, as some foods are simply toxic to some ever larger proportion of the population. And if we want to be healthy, we can't eat them. You know, the, the Atkins diet beginning in the 1960s was a carbohydrate-restricted high-fat diet. The animal diet for diabetes that was used from 1797 till insulin came in was a carbohydrate-restricted high-fat diet. It was considered a very effective treatment for epilepsy beginning around 1920. And there was always sort of significant evidence in the literature that People, some people just couldn't tolerate the carbs in the diet that for whatever reasons, probably insulin related and glucagon related, these foods, when they're refined and they're digested quickly today, we call them high glycemic index carbs. And again, sugars could be particularly bad for us, that if we don't eat those, we'll be healthy. And again, if you want to keep your calories up, then you have to replace those carbohydrate-rich foods with calories, and inevitably, it's mostly fat. Even sources of protein come with fat attached, unless there's skinless chicken breasts, which I don't think anyone should ever have to eat. So yeah, all these lines of thinking lead you to believe that we should eat, in effect, uh, if we want to be healthy, a very low-carbohydrate diet and replace those calories with healthy fats. And now you're eating something that looks a lot like keto or Atkins or carnivore even. And one of the subtexts of everything I write about, it's in the diabetes book as well, is one as soon as the medical organizations like the American Diabetes Association, the American Heart Association, and the National Institutes of Health, and then the U.S. Department of Agriculture get involved, once they start taking the conventional wisdom and turning it into dietary guidelines that we should all follow, anything that is divergent from that is treated as a fad diet or a quackery. Um, it's dismissed as dangerous or harmful or something that people won't adhere to because we know people won't stick it to a diet. And so the medical community thinks of all ways to convince people not to eat a diet that this alternative hypothesis, which is based on the literature and the history, says is probably the healthiest way to eat. Yeah, it's kind of... And that's how I eat. <laughs> okay. Kind of the sad the sad story of all this as you go through is they come up with the concept with insulin that you can cover up the carbohydrates, the volume of carbohydrates and particularly sugar that the American or the Western diet starts taking on escalates. And so we're no longer covering up 30 pounds of sugar a year, 20, 45 pounds. Like we're talking over 100 pounds to 150 pounds of sugar that a lot of people are eating in a year. And if you're using insulin to cover that up, we're not talking about 
five units here, 10 units there. We're, we're talking in terms of a couple hundred units here and a couple hundred units there. So I think that sometimes when we think we have a miracle drug that allows us to do things, then everything just sort of flips the other way, which kind of gets me concerned about this uh, glucagon-like peptide stuff that's coming out is that a lot of people are looking at it and saying, oh, well, that's going to help me lose 30 pounds. I'm going to do that instead of eating a diet that's going to help my body naturally get rid of body fat and eat a little bit less, maybe. They're looking to something like that to cover it off, if you will. What What are your thoughts about these new wonder drugs? Or I got chewed a little bit by a doctor that prescribes these because he's like, oh, these are peptides. These are not drugs. These are just natural occurring things, which is probably a little true, but uh, not something right. you're going to inject. Yeah, not something you're just going to inject at it. Once you start injecting are, something, I'm going to call it a drug, but. <laughs> yeah, I think that's safe. These are pretty profound variations on the naturally occurring hormones. Um, but yeah, I have the same worries. I mean, the, the good news would be that because one of the effects, whether it's direct or indirect, is to so powerfully inhibit appetite, people are going to be eating a lot less of the foods that I would argue they shouldn't eat anyway. And it may be that these particularly target sweets are one thing that, you know, when they talk about cravings going away, the things we tend to crave are sweets. So I suspect that's a kind way of saying people aren't craving desserts all the time, and maybe they're drinking less sugar-sweetened beverages. So that could balance out. It's one of the interesting benefits. I do think that the world is full of people who, even if they, you know, a carnivore diet would still have considerably more uh, excess fat than they prefer. And that if they want to uh, take care of that, the drugs would be beneficial. But I do worry that insulin to me... They reading the insulin story in the literature was kind of horrifying because you see how it could take 10 to 15 years before you really understand the bad things that could happen. And by that time, it's too late. And I keep hoping that maybe I'm just misunderstanding the level, uh, you know, the kinds of clinical studies that have been done today so that somebody could convince me that I shouldn't be anxious that as millions and tens of millions of individuals embrace these drugs, we're not going to see the kind of tidal wave of complications you know, that we couldn't imagine. There are all kinds of other issues, like with pregnancy, for instance, if a young woman goes on a, a, a drug like Wagovi and, and loses 50 pounds and gets married and then wants to have children, does she stay on the drug while she's pregnant? If she does, what happens to the fetus, to the child? And if she gets off the drug before she goes pregnant, she'll be gaining weight back at a very considerable speed while she's pregnant. And we don't know what will happen to the child. And it could take 20, 30, 40, 50 years before we actually know the long-term consequences of what happened in the womb. And so there are situations that I don't think we're prepared to deal with. But again, I'm hoping that I'm just naive here, that this is an area where I could find the authorities who could convince me that I don't know what I'm talking about. I think, you know, just the lesson that I, I took away from insulin here was it's not a cover. It doesn't mean that you just go full bore and you're free and you can do what you want to do and you just take more to cover off on it. I kind of look at this the same way and say, what lifestyle changes can you be making to support a lower weight 
when you get there. And that this, this is just a helper to get you to a point like just the, you know, like the guy who comes in and he's going into a, a coma and the kid's going to be dead in a couple hours if they don't get that shot of insulin. So you give them the shot of insulin and it revives them and now you can deal with it. But, you know, in this case, I, again, I hope there's some lifestyle changes that come along with these things. That's a good man. And again, one of the the reasons I write these books is histories. I, I'm trying to reach the, the physicians and the researchers to say, look, I think if you did what I did, you would come to some of the same conclusions. If you looked at these histories and you saw that, you know, when we think about obesity, it's not a overeating problem. It's a, in effect, a carbohydrate intolerance problem. So if you could use these drugs to lower your weight significantly, but if you have to go off them, you will be, you probably won't gain the weight back if you don't eat these foods that caused you to gain the weight to begin with. And the, the drug will probably work better, but we don't actually know because these drugs are not tested on those of us who eat, you know, low carb, high fat, ketogenic diets are tested on people who eat the sort of standard American crap. So we don't even really know if they're healthy for us or as healthy or maybe more healthy or we represent our metabolisms run different. Like we burn fat for fuel, other people burn carbohydrates for fuel. So there's a whole world of problems that comes with relying on a drug when these chronic disorders might be solvable might be able to be put into remission with dietary changes that we can be pretty confident, but not absolutely confident, do not have those long-term effects because we're eating diets that basically we evolved as a species to eat. Whatever you do, once you start talking about long-term, 10, 20, 30, 40 years on a drug or a diet, we don't really know what's going to happen. We'll get back together and we'll do that podcast episode, okay? <laughs> With luck. <laughs> I think the odds are better for you than for me. Yeah, we'll see. You're going to write the book anyway. Gary, I define wellness as being the healthiest, fittest, and happiest you can be. What are three strategies or tactics to get and stay well? You know, now you're asking a journalist to give advice, and that's never a good idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, eat the diet that makes you feel healthiest in the short run. So by that, I mean, if you suffer from a chronic disorder, which can be obesity or diabetes or heart disease, a little tougher, but let's stick with obesity or diabetes where you can actually experience the symptoms in the short term. If you can find a diet that, that makes those symptoms go away, which includes excess weight and high blood sugar and high blood pressure, then that's how you should eat. And in that case, you have to do your research. So that you understand what the arguments are for eating this way, this eating pattern, and how to follow it. And so that would be the first thing. I believe there's some foods we just shouldn't eat because they're bad for us and that we'll get over missing them as we get healthy. The others become trivial to me after that. I mean, getting enough sleep and physical activity because I don't know if they'll make us live longer, but they tend to make people happier and emotionally balanced in the short run. So that's trivia. My expertise is purely diet and even there as a journalist. So well, thank you. And you know, they say that the value of history is to learn so we don't repeat it. So I'm glad you did take the time to write this book the way you did, because I do think that a lot of doctors can look back and say, okay, here's what we know and here's what we've learned. And 
here's what we know we should, probably should be doing regardless. And so I, so I think it's a valuable book for anybody, including medical professionals that want to just know why we think the way we think when they really haven't seen any literature that proves what we think. So thank you for that. If someone wanted to learn more about you, learn more about your book, Rethinking Diabetes, where would you like for me to send them? Well, Amazon to purchase the book. I do think it's a typical author. I think it's very much worth reading. I do too. See, I, have a, I have a website, garydobbs.com. I, am, uh, I have a substack now with uh, the wonderful journalist Nina Teicholz called Unsettled Science, in which we discuss these issues of nutrition and chronic disease and the various influences in the science that perhaps shouldn't be there. And I tweet at Gary Taubes, although not as often as I should. Well, thank you. And Gary, thank you so much for being a part of 40 Plus Fitness. Thank you, Alan. Welcome back, Raz. Hey, Alan. That was a really fascinating discussion. There's so much to talk about the history of diabetes. It's just one of those things that I've always just known existed, but I didn't realize that insulin was only invented in 1920 or 1921, I think. Yeah. That feels so recent. They found it in the early 20s, 1920s. So it's just a little over 100 years old. That's crazy. And, And then because they understood what was happening, particularly with, at that point in time, type 1 diabetics, because there weren't Mm -hmm. that many type 2 diabetics. It just didn't happen as often. It was a type 1. And that's why it's called type 1. It was the first one. They like, okay, they don't have insulin. So what happens is they end up in a coma. Mm -hmm. And they bring them into the hospital in a coma. And in the past, they pretty much said they're just going to die. And so now they're like, okay, we inject them with this insulin. They didn't know how much. They didn't know anything. They're just like, just, you know. Try this. Inject them, yeah. <laughs> so they injected in and they and some of them were recovering. And so like, oh, so they need this insulin mm-hmm. to, to do the process. So now they didn't fully understand what all was going on with the process, but they could see the relationship between insulin and blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they started working with. And wow. it's interesting that they had some dietary protocols until they figured out of what insulin was and how it works. But in the beginning, they did have some very interesting dietary protocol. Well, they did because they understood it was that the sugar and not having insulin. So it was like, well, you know, some doctors were, well, if they don't eat, then they mm-hmm. should be fine. If you don't, <laughs> don't eat. eat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they were, some of them were on, they were putting, people were going on starvation diets realized that the medical system was very different back then. So mm-hmm. they could do experimentation on their clients with, you know, their patients without really worrying about it. They were just doing everything they could think of to solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Sharing information with other doctors, you know, like I, I, I tried this with this client and it worked. Mm-hmm. This client, it didn't. So, you know, mm-hmm. this is something to think about because it has worked. But dietary was one of the core ones because there's, there weren't a lot. Metformin didn't exist. Other drugs didn't exist. So really, they didn't have anything. So that's all they could really do was change your behavior or change the mm-hmm. way you eat, change your movement, change your you mm-hmm. know, output. And so they had done this. There was one doctor that speculated that you could just feed people fat to replace the calories. Yeah. So protein mm-hmm. and fat instead of, protein, instead of more balanced meal. Mm-hmm. And that was working for a lot of type 1 diabetics. They were staying they were staying alive longer. They still would at some point in time potentially go into a coma and die because they they you know, you can't change what someone's eating when they're unconscious and can't eat. Mm-hmm. And so that would happen. What was so weird in my opinion was that the instant 
we had access to this, we call it a drug, but it's basically a hormone, but a drug. As soon as we had mm-hmm. this thing, everybody dropped every other protocol out there and just yes. on. Now, yes. that was fine for a while, but the thing was people started living longer. Mm-hmm. And the other diseases of lifestyle that are associated with diabetes, like heart disease and kidney issues, they still came on. But they, now you saw them because before, they show, the, the first time you maybe knew they had a problem was when they showed up in a coma and then they died mm-hmm. shortly thereafter. Right. Here, they're living into their 40s and having heart disease, mm-hmm. which compared to a, a normal average person might be 10 to 20 years earlier. Mm-hmm. So they were thinking, oh, the high-fat diets that these folks are eating are the problem, so we need to make sure they're eating a carbohydrate-rich diet. They've mm-hmm. got insulin to cover off on it, so don't worry about mm-hmm. that. So it's this, and, and they're trying to solve a problem, so it's hard to look at sure. them and say, you didn't know what you were doing. True, because they didn't mm-hmm. know what they didn't sure. know. But mm-hmm. we're at a point right now where I just, other than the fact that compliance would always be an issue, it just chaps me that we don't go with medicine as a food first, lifestyle first approach. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, towards the end of the interview, he mentioned the term dietary therapy. And I I feel like that's a great term because if you have a condition, especially like diabetes, if there are certain foods that make that condition worse, why would you want to take them? Even though you have the insulin to cover them up, like why put that fuel on the fire if you don't need it? I like that term too, because at this point, yes, it is effectively acknowledging that food is medicine. Mm -hmm. Someone said that a long, long, long time ago. So we've known that (laughs) for a long time. We just ignore Mm -hmm. it most of the time because it's not cool and you Mm -hmm. can't sell that diet necessarily. Doctors can't sell it. Pharmaceutical companies can't sell it. Mm -hmm. What they want is like, here's your shot. Go have at it. Do what you want to do. Here's a pill. Go have at it. Mm -hmm. That's why I wanted to talk about the, even though he didn't do a lot in his book about GLP-1s, those are coming out now and they're so popular and it's like, oh, I don't, I'm not hungry. And, you know, I lose all this weight, 15% Mm -hmm. of my body weight is gone. And, you know, as long as I keep taking these shots, which are like a thousand dollars each, I do that once a week. Yeah. So, you know, think about that's okay. That's a new car every year. Um, Oh my gosh. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And you're just doing that so that you can maintain a lifestyle that's not what it should be. And so that's, that's where I really struggle with it. So I think you calling it a therapy is going to help some people probably turn on their brain. Mm -hmm. But but then also the problem is, well, then after I'm cured, I stop the therapy and that, that could fundamentally backfire as well. Mm -hmm. So Yes, it's life-saving and it's incredible that insulin was found and has saved lots of lives, extended lives a lot longer than they would have. But if you don't change your lifestyle, then all you've really done is just delayed it and changed the way you're going to die, mm-hmm. what you may die of. So heart disease, kidney disease, yeah, gangrene, mm-hmm. Alzheimer's, yeah. all of that. And you're not going to have it when most people would have it. So you're not like in your 70s or 80s or 90s dealing with this stuff. You're dealing with it in your 40s, 50s, and 60s. Too early. Yeah. The instant you walk in and the doctor says your A1C is a little high. Mm -hmm. His next words that are going to come out of his mouth is, I'm not really worried about that. Right. (laughs) And the reason is, is because of all the patients that come in his office, the vast majority Mm -hmm. are. 
Mm-hmm. I read a survey this week thing that said by 2030. Now, that date just sounds hugely far away, but it's seven years. I mean, four, yeah, six years. It's not that far away anymore. Yeah, it's, exactly. You know, still be alive in 2030, I hope. Mm-hmm. Oh, but <laughs> by that point in time, half of Americans will be obese. That's crazy. Half of us. That's crazy. Will be obese. Oh my gosh. At the current rate we're going. So if you're not going to change your lifestyle, if the doctor tells you, don't worry about it, you know, mm-hmm. you're close, you're borderline, mm-hmm. it's time for you to implement dietary therapy. Well, you that's, know? you know, that's the needle. Okay. <laughs> that's the needle. If your doctor yeah. says that you're looking at pre-diabetes, then you can either let that needle go forward straight into diabetes, or you can stop it there and go backwards and and reclaim your health through yeah. all of the interventions that we talk about all the time. Better and, and diet cool, and exercise. Yeah, and the cool thing of all this is we're at a point in time where with what they know about genetics and what they're learning and getting some of the judgment out of there, where things like AI will just go out there and say, if this, then that, and mm-hmm. they'll do it at such a a crazy level of what your gene expression is at any given point in time, mm-hmm. you can have these treatments that could extend life, not just an extra few years, but like decades mm-hmm. and decades. Sure. There's a theory that at some point we could basically almost become immortal. Not that <laughs> anyone would want that, but yeah. that basically that the medical establishment will get ahead of the curve. And with every year, they'll be able to add more than a year of life. Mm-hmm. So you start thinking about the ability of medical science to add to and extend life. The only reason that it's not going up drastically right now is because of the way we're living our lives with lifestyle things. So if we fixed our lifestyle, we would live much, much longer Mm -hmm. than our parents. And our kids would live a lot, lot longer than us. Longer is great, but I want to put in there high quality. Yes. Yeah, you know, I don't want to just both, sit yeah. on the couch for decades. You know, I want to be active yeah. and moving and, and being capable of living a high quality of life. I think with the metformin, which is often prescribed for pre-diabetics as well as insulin, when you get to that point of diabetes, if, if you're looking at type two and not type, been born with type one, but those are just the tools. That's not the answer. Like that is one thing that can help you live a healthier life. But I think we often look at that as the answer, the end, the one thing to do to manage this this illness, but it's not. We really need to go back and like we say every week, Alan, get into an exercise program and eat way better foods to manage and be healthy. And that's why like there was the doctor that because so many people have high cholesterol, mm-hmm. his solution was just like we did with fluoride for dental cavities was to put it in the water. Mm-hmm. Put statins in the water. Oh. Oh. Okay. Wow. Hmm. No, no. Because again, they do not believe that you can do this. And oh I, what gosh. I can say is, you know, even just the keto diet or people mm-hmm. eating a lot more whole food, that is a, it's a fraction of the total way that people eat. Mm-hmm. But that's getting bigger every year. The number of people mm-hmm. who try keto and are successful with it gets bigger every year. And so there is success here, but you have to make that choice and you have to make that effort to make that lifestyle change or it won't happen. Yep, that's absolutely it. Bottom line. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll talk to you next week. Awesome. Take care, Alan. You too. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Next time on the 40 Plus Fitness Podcast, 
We meet Dr. Aditi Nukar and discuss her book, The Five Resets, Rewire Your Brain and Body for Less Stress and More Resilience. Until then, have a happy and healthy week.